good morning, church. Normally, I drink water, and today I'm drinking coffee, so this is going to be a great day. I, I can see that the weather's getting darker outside, but we're going to be lit up in here. Like, we're just going to be excited about it, all right? <clears throat> I get an amen. You, there's coffee, right? You see that big spaceship over there? Like, that's all the coffee. So, bottomless, bottomless coffee this morning. Um, it's good to be with you. We are uh, in the series that we're calling D.I. Yahweh. A little bit of a play on words, DIY, do it yourself. God's name is Yahweh. So how does God get stuff done in the world? Because I don't know if you felt it acutely this week. I don't know if you felt it personally this week. But it seems like the work that God wants to get done in the world takes forever to get done. It seems like there's always something that comes up. And, and if, if you're like me, I've, I think I shared a little bit. Your calculations for how to get home improvement stuff finished should go like this. <clears throat> the time that you think you can do it times five equals how long it's actually going to take. And the, the hard part is when you're going to the home improvement store for the third time and you're just saying, I could have picked this up the first time that I was here if I'd have known how it was going to go wrong later. And I'm here again. And you walk into the, the plumbing department at Lowe's and the guy's like, oh, what'd you forget? You're like, well, I didn't forget it. It just something else broke now because I'm, I'm not done yet. I got, I'm not done. Don't make fun of me. Where's this part? <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know if you have conversations with those people. I do. They're always fun. <clears throat> so it's a funny way to think about it. In the moment, I'm sure, you don't feel like it's funny. It's very frustrating. You're like, I just want to get this done. I just want water to stop spewing all over my kitchen. I just want for the wall not to be falling down. Whatever it is, the project that you're working on, you, it, there's a reason why you're working on it. It's gotten bad enough that you feel like you need to fix it yourself. And so now that I'm, I'm in this, I'm invested, it's just not going the way that I wanted it to go. And it feels frustrating. And the work that God wants to do in the world, he chooses, and I say this as reverently as I can, he chooses to ch use dumb people to get it done. God in his infinite wisdom, creator of the universe, all-powerful maker of everything that we have seen or imagined that we could see, says, I've got things I need to get done. Michael, you're up. And that doesn't seem to me to be like the most efficient way to get things done. So what happens when God uses people who are flawed, who are limited in their ability, who are limited in their understanding, and tries to accomplish something in the world? How does he get it done? Because if my calculation for home improvement is the time that I can get it done times five, like if God's is the time that I can get it done, how quickly can I say the word? times I really want to invest and use these people to get it done, it could take thousands of years. So what do we do when we come to those roadblocks? How do we, as the people who are involved in the work that God wants to do, how do we interact with the roadblocks that show up? Because the roadblocks come, and they come quick. Last week, we got to talk about how they spent 70 years in time out, and then they came back, and they got to work, right? And they rebuilt the altar, they made, they made this altar that was the center point of, of the worship for them so they could offer these sacrifices. But they weren't finished yet. The work wasn't completed. It's a pile of rocks that you can offer sacrifice on in the middle of a ruined city and a ruined temple complex. 
So let's see what the next chapters hold for us. And would you pray with me as we begin? Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you that you are wiser than us, that your thoughts are not our thoughts, your ways are not our ways. And the Lord, we ask and humbly submit, ask that you would teach us your ways, that you would teach us your thoughts. Not that we could inform you of anything in the world, but God, you could show us your heart and the ways that you work through flawed people. Lord, would you strengthen our faith as we interact with you and your word, and as we partner with you in the work that you are going to do, because of the finished work that you have already done through your son. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So if you open up your Bibles, if you're using a blue Bible, it's going to be on page 488. 488 in the blue Bibles. We're going to be in Ezra and beginning in chapter 3. We're going to be in the middle of chapter 3 in the book of Ezra on page 488. (laughs) We're actually going to begin in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 8. And we're going to, if the Lord wills, make it from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 6. So I'm not going to read all of that, but we've got some work that we need to do. We've got some ground we need to cover. But remember, as we left off last week, they had raised an altar of loose-fitting stones, uncut stones, and they had begun to sacrifice, the sac- do the worship of God as they were able to, according to the calendar. They were getting back on track. Now look in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 8. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Shealtiel and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. So let me just recap real quick in case those names threw you off. This is two years after they showed up. Zerubbabel is the governor. He's the, the, the governing ruler. And Jeshua is the priest. And then he gets together all the Levites, all the people who were working in the priests, and they made a beginning. I love that phrase. They created a beginning. God's story continues on, and we can trace the roots all the way back, but they made a beginning for the work they had to do right here. I love that, but I'll, I'll continue reading. They appointed Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. So everybody's getting in on this. And when the builders, verse 10, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the son of, sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. 
though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. <clears throat> so what happens is they get the whole team together. After two years, they've made a beginning. Like, let's, let's get this done. So they've got an altar, a pile of rocks, in the middle of this ruined temple. They say, let's clean this up and let's build the rest of the temple because God designed the temple to do more than just the altar of sacrifice. There are other things that go in there. There's lampstands and there's tables of the bread of presents. There's all kinds of things that need to go into the temple, and I'm not going to talk about all that. But I do want to say there's more to build. There was more to clean up. And so they get together and they made a beginning and they laid the foundations. They poured the footers. Has anybody ever like walked up to a house that's under construction and like gotten really excited that they poured the footers and the foundation was, was there? Is there anything to look at? No. So I love what they're doing here because they're saying, look, we've been, we haven't done anything for two years. We got something done. We checked something off the honeydew list. Like, let's celebrate. Let's party. Let's get all the priests out together and let's have a celebration and let's praise God for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever to the house of Israel. Like, God is so good. He's brought us thus far. How much farther will he take us now? And the people are like, yes, this is what we came back to do. We're so excited. It's going to happen. I wasn't so sure. We've been walking around trying to get our houses built because we got to live somewhere too for the last two years. We're trying to figure out how to, how to make a life in a new land different from the one that we grew up in because we grew up in time out. And now we're back in the promised land. And we got to figure out how to make this happen. And now it's happening. It's happening before our eyes. And the old men and the priests are looking at this foundation and they go, well, we don't have the resources that Solomon had. Solomon was the wealthiest man in the world. And so when he laid the foundations of this temple, he laid them and he built the walls straight up. And if you don't do architecture, it doesn't make, like, you're like, so what? They build the walls straight up. Like, we do concrete blocks. All of our walls are straight. But they didn't build it the same way. They're saying, look, with the, with the way the budget is working out, we're going to lay these foundations, and then we're going to have to build the walls inward in order for them to be able to stand. So as they laid the foundations, the old men are, in the, are out there calculating how much smaller this temple is going to be than the one that got destroyed. And their hearts are broken. Their hearts are broken because it's not what it was before. And their hearts are broken because the, the young people don't even know it's not what it was before. There's a tension as we age where we go like, I knew something. And, and the young people don't look to me to ask what I used to know. <laughs> and, and sometimes that's frustrating. We say, they don't even know what they're missing out on. The, the, they were born into a world, my, my kids were born into a world where smartphones are just assumed. They don't know what it's like to not be connected. My kids do not know what it's like to have a question and not have it immediately answered by Google. My kids don't know what it's like to be like, I wonder what kind of noise that animal makes. And then to immediately be able to pull up a file of that, like, they, they don't know. And there was something about 
searching through dictionaries and encyclopedias, the process of gathering information, I think that there was something valuable about that. Our age has a, blessed, a blessedness of just having all the information we could want. There's a blessing to that. There's a curse to it. I think a part of the curse is that they don't know how to find anything. So the young people are like, yeah, we're doing something. God's on the move. It's going to be great. And the old people are like, you don't even know. I, wor I, I worshiped here with my father. I came here with my granddad. And the walls were straight up and down. Solomon himself built that temple. I was proud of that. And now with the money we got right now, I don't know, it's, it's not going to be the same. And so you've got this scene of, 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 of tension. The young people rejoicing, the old people weeping. And this is just the foundation. They waited two years to get the, the, the blocks laid for the foundation. The question that this draws to mind is like at the very outset, I can, I can perceive that in, in the older generation, they can just start to derail what God wants to do in the next generation because it's not going to be like what they knew before. The older generation can look back and go, well, it's not, it's not how it used to be, and you don't know, and let me tell you something. I need to educate you about how it used to be. And they can just douse the flames that God has birthed in the younger generation and like, we're excited. We came, we traveled hundreds and thousands of miles to come here and do this. And the, but it's not as good as it used to be. And then the old, the younger generation is now discouraged. And the work of God has a barrier to it, has an obstacle to it before it literally is even off the ground. Like it's, this is the foundation that we're talking about. So are we the ones? Is there something in our heart which is opposing God's good work in the world? We're the workers. But is there something that is going on in our heart that is in opposition to the work that God wants to do in the world? Is it self-doubt? God could never use me. Is it unmet expectations? God, that isn't what you did 10 years ago. That isn't how we did it at the other church. Or is it just simply compromise? This is the best we can do. Are we the ones who's opposing God's good work? As we continue through this this morning, our big idea is this, that God patiently overcomes obstacles to his good work. Where we are the microwave generation, if it wasn't done in 30 seconds, it isn't going to happen. God patiently overcomes obstacles to his good work. Even the obstacles in my heart. We look at chapter 4. In verse 1. Ezra chapter 4, verse 1, page 488 in the Blue Bibles there. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, 
the God of Israel. They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asherharon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. <laughs> but Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, uh, You have nothing to do with us in the building of a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Jeru Judah and Jerusalem. So I'm going to pause there and explain to you what happened. <clears throat> so they start building this foundation. They're having a worship gathering that you can hear 10 miles away. Like, it was loud. And so it gets the attention of the people, their neighbors. And so their neighbors come and like, all right, well, what's going on? You guys are building a temple? Like, we'll help you. We worship the same God you do. We've worshiped the same God ever since that time that we got taken over by that pagan king who worshiped the other, the other deities. So they're offering the help and they're saying the right words, but there's no way that that's accurate because God set up the worship of him to be specific. He wanted it done in Jerusalem with this altar and this temple. And if they've been sacrificing, like there's some confusion about the way that they've been offering sacrifices. And if you, this is history that we didn't really touch on too much, but the king of Assyria, like he was the one who was the judgment upon the first people, the first set of people that got sent into timeout. Like he was the pagan king that judged the, the first, was used as a judgment over the first sets of tribes of Israel. Like he wasn't worshiping God. He was a tool used by God, but he was not worshiping Yahweh in any sense of this. And they're, and they're saying, well, that's the guy who told us about you. Like, really? He told you about, he told you about God? Have you ever like, <clears throat> I don't know. There's some people, I've, I've only met a couple of them, but there are some people who think they know everybody. And, and, and they will tell you about all of the people that they've met, and they've got a list as long as both of their arms. They're like, I know all of the, everybody you've ever seen on the news, they know them personally. They had lunch with them last week. Have you, have you met people like this? I think that's kind of what these guys are like, yeah, we know, we know Yahweh. We worship Yahweh. We hang out. We're cool. We offered, we offered our kids to Yahweh last week. Like, no, you don't offer children to worship Yahweh. Like, there was a disconnect. So, hey, hey, look, look. I know you're, you're, you're saying the right thing. You, you want to help. Um, no. You're going to distract us. We're already, we've got enough discouragement that we've got to overcome. Like, no, no, no. We don't want any part of you. We don't want to help. And so, by, by doing the right thing, listen, listen. By doing the right thing, they made their job harder. By saying, no, you're not going to help us, they became adversaries and they started pestering them and they started bribing the people that were doing, driving the delivery trucks to get the materials to build the temple. And they start doing whatever they can to frustrate the plans. And so by doing the right thing and saying, no, you actually don't worship Yahweh and this is something Yahweh's given for us to do so you don't get to participate in it until you get to come into the community with Yahweh. Now it's that much harder to such a degree that they write a letter to the king back in Persia. And I'm not going to read to you the letter because it takes up the rest of the chapter, uh, chapter 4 there. But what they do is they exaggerate. <clears throat> they have exaggerated claims. They have false accusations. 
But like, you don't, king, 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 king. I know you said that these people could come back and build, rebuild this temple, but you don't know how bad these guys are. Like, they're rebellious. They never fall in line. They think that they just do their own thing, and, and they're never going to pay their taxes on time, and they're just constantly going to be a headache for you. You don't want, so their letter is full of accusations, false accusations, and is full of exaggeration. And here's the thing that probably stings the most for us. It's full of remembering the worst history. There are times where we're in conflict with people and they bring up like the worst moment you've ever had. And you're like, you know, you know me well enough to know that that's not how I often behave. You know that that was a moment of weakness. You know that I was not in the right spot. You knew all of these. Why would you bring that moment up? I was not doing the right thing at that point. And you're going to point that at me? Like, you know that that's not my habit. So that's what these accusations were coming from. That one time that they maybe didn't pay their taxes on time, like now it's, oh, they never pay the taxes on time. It's exaggerated. They're false accusations and it's remembering the worst parts of their history. So by doing the right thing, they've created it more difficult for themselves. And now they get a letter sent that's tattling on them. And the king writes back and says, I didn't know all that. Tell them to cut it out. I don't want them building the temple over there. I don't want them doing that. Tell them to stop. And they do. Because if somebody writes a letter to the king and says that you're rebellious and you don't listen and you're never going to submit to authority, like how do you, like how can you respond to that? I'm not, I'm not rebellious. How dare you say that to me? I'm not going to listen to you. Well, now he knows that what they just wrote is true. I don't need to listen to what you said because I just worship my God and my God said that I need to build this temple so I'm going to do it. Well, I, I, you've just demonstrated that all of the false stuff that they wrote in the letter was actually true about you. There are times where in getting defensive of ourselves, we become the prophecy that other people want for us to be. There's times where we play into other people's nonsense by listening to the false things that they had said and we make it true of ourselves. So my question is, who wins when we get defensive? Not, not, not when we defend. There are some things that we must defend. And we can defend truth without being defensive. Because the thing that happens here at the end of chapter 4 is the king sends him a letter and tells him to stop. They don't send a response. They don't respond to the false accusations. They don't continue to build in, in rebellion. They just stop. I don't have a way forward here. If I continue, then the king of Persia is going to bring his whole army and crush us. We'll be back at ground zero. If, if I get defensive and try to show how, how that's not actually true about me, I just show that maybe it was. So who wins when we get defensive? But God patiently overcomes obstacles to his good work. But God patiently overcomes obstacles to his good work. Look with me in chapter 5, in verse 1, page 489 in the Blue Bibles. 
verse five or chapter five, verse one. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatiani, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates who came with them, came to them and spoke to them thus, quote, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? Verse 4, they also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? Verse 5, But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So, let me explain a little bit of what happened. They stop. They drop their tools like, all right, I don't see a way forward in this. I'm just going to wait. And in the waiting, God speaks. This is a novel thing where sometimes we, we get so flustered with God. We're like, God, why don't you, won't you just do something? Like, can't you overcome your adversaries? Don't you see that they're stopping the work that you started? Like, don't you want to do something? Aren't you active in the world? Like, I thought you were good. Why are you letting bad things happen? And, and, and we just start screaming at God and we're angry at him. He's like, wait. Has anything changed in heaven? Am I any less God today than I was when I sent you to do this mission? And when they begin to wait, God speaks. He sends more people to communicate to them. Haggai and Zechariah. And the cool, there's some really cool things in Haggai and Zechariah. Those are, those are books that we have written down. We know what their prophecies were. And there's some, there's some crazy insights into spiritual warfare and specifically the spiritual warfare that Jeshua the priest was going through. And I wish we could get into that, but we got other things that we're going to cover in this series. If you, if you're, I hope that you would go and read those things. Because the prophecy and how God speaks to them in those days are so interesting. But God is, God is patient and he's firm and he says, look, I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to do this. We're going to finish what we started. And so now the, the, the political situation in Persia has changed. There are different kings. And so now you can begin to build again. They pick up their tools and they begin to build. Well, the, the, the rulers, the people who are outside, they say, what, who gave you the authority to build this thing? Like, and who are the names of the people that are building? We want to make sure that we know who you guys are just in case, you know, we need to tell the king in case he's interested in that kind of thing. He might be interested because we think you're rebellious and we don't really want you to worship the true God. So what's their names? <clears throat> and they say, they give them to me. Because what they're saying, hey, remember all the way back in chapter one, like we do have a decree, a written decree from Cyrus that we're supposed to build this. And there have been a couple of kings since then in Persia. And so if you want to look in the history records, like we have a decree that we ought to build this temple to Yahweh. So the guy's like, okay, well, if you say that you've got a, a letter from the king, then uh, it ought to be in his archives. So they write a letter to the king and say, hey, this is what's going on. We just want you, maybe you should probably be aware this is happening. We, we didn't ask, like we're just trying to be good servants. 
Like, and we wanted you to be aware that this is what's going on in this like a little rebellious corner of the world. Like, we just want you to know ahead of time what's happening. They're building this temple. And so they say that they've got permission from some former king. If you just look in the archives and see if it's there, like, we're just trying to be good servants of you, oh, Lord King. Like, you, you don't need to judge us, but if you want to come and destroy them and wipe them off the map, then we, you know, whatever you need us to do, like, just let us know. We're just, we're just watching out for you, king, okay? That's what we're, we're just watching out for you, all right? So they write this letter to the king. The king's like, all right, uh, somebody go check the archives. They go to the archives. Guess what they find? They find the old order. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, it looks like the, the, the king did give them this to go and rebuild the temple. And so the king writes a letter back to these people that are just looking out for him. He says, hey, look, one, they have an order. They have authorization to do this. They can do that. So let them do it. Um, two, it looks like they're building it too small. The way that they're going to build it, like they've got the foundations and then the walls are going to go up. Like that's not the way it was, it was decreed to build. It needs to have straight walls. You guys need more money for this project. I'm going to send some more money over there so that they can build it the right way. And, and I want you to be, do you guys administrate for this? Make sure they get the money that they need. Make sure they get the tools they need to build it the right way. And by the way, stop harassing them. Let them finish the work that they were supposed to do. I know you're not watching out for my back. You're watching out for yours. And that's about how the letter reads. Really, really interesting. And again, this is a Persian king who doesn't worship Yahweh and yet writes these words to those people who are accusing God's people. It's fascinating. So God encourages with his prophets. The outsiders begin to question and God's people just continue to build in faith. He sent us to build this temple. We're going to do it. The letter comes back. Build it bigger. And those of you who are trying to distract, just get out of the way. So the question that comes to my mind is, is will our faith stand under questioning? When we get into the ring, when we get into life, when we, when we make statements about what our faith is, when we say that we're going to trust God with certain things, will our faith stand under questioning? Because the questions will come. If, you, if we come in and we gather together on a Sunday morning and, and I say some spiritual things and you're like, yeah, I think those spiritual things are true. When you take those spiritual things home with you and, and God forms them in your heart, when he takes the truth of his word and puts it in your heart and you go out and you're living your life and some of that truth comes out, there's going to be people in your life and you might even know who they are right now, but there are going to be people in your life who say, that's not true. What do you mean? You can trust God even though it doesn't look like anything is going right. You can't trust God. He's never done anything for me. Will our faith stand up under questioning? Because the questions come. So let's see how all of this pans out. If you look with me in Ezra chapter 6, verse 13. Page 491 in the Blue Bibles, Ezra chapter 6, verse 13. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatenai the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and their associates did, all, did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. Hey, get out of the way. They moved. <clears throat> verse 14. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. 
And this house was finished on the third day in the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Okay, they finished. Verse 16, And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. As it is written in the book of Moses, there's just one, one little thing I want to point out here before we take the next break. As it is written in the book of Moses is actually a really big phrase here. Because we'll find out, and we would find out in chapter 7 had we looked at it, that they actually didn't know what was written in the book of Moses. That in the course of rebuilding the temple, they found the word of God. And Ezra, who this book is named after, is a prophet who comes back and begins to sort and organize and teach the people the word. They had, they had so long walked away from God that they didn't even remember that they had copies of what he had said before. So now they've rebuilt the temple. In the course of rebuilding the temple, they found God's instructions, and now they're following the instructions. It's actually a really great way for things to work in your life. You have to try it. I try it too. Like if God tells you to do something and you do it, it'll probably work out pretty well. Just saying. So they're setting things up the way that God had designed for it to be. They rediscover the word of God, and they do things according to the word of God, and it goes well for them. They worship the Lord with what? Joy. And the, the timing of their time out, the 70 years, was related to the times that they had, had ignored the year of Jubilee and, and not let the land rest. And so now as they come back, in verse 19, on the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. I just want to pause. There were people who came and said, we worship Yahweh. And they're like, no, you don't. Standing for truth meant that other people could come to a knowledge of truth. Do you see that? Like this is an exiled group of people coming back in. They are uh, closed-minded they, they are an isolated group. Not everybody can come in. But here, not only are the returned exiles eating, but also everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land. The people of God grew because of their, their confidence in standing true to the worship of Yahweh. In verse 22, And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided, he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. They celebrated with joy. All this pain, two years waiting on an altar, and then 15 years waiting for something to happen, I don't know. And then God starts speaking again, and then we got to build like the hard labor of lifting heavy stones and putting them on top of each other. But hey, God had provided a way for us to build it the right way. Like the lamentations and the weeping of the older generation was answered. Do you see that? Because God patiently overcomes obstacles to his work. I just want to ask, where does our joy in worship come from? 
Are they joyful? Because everything in their life has been going just swimmingly? Or are they joyful because it's been really hard and God has still been good to us? We've had to suffer through this. We've had people talk bad about us. We've had people uh, sabotage our plans and the things that we wanted to do for God, and yet God has still showed up and he finished what he started. Where does our joy in worship come? Your joy on a Sunday morning doesn't come from having a great week Monday through Saturday. Your joy comes from whatever it is that you face, whether it's been difficulty, whether it's been people slandering you, whether it's been failure, like whatever those things are, we get to Sunday and remember that it is finished. Christ has done it. He has given us free redemption and that we can worship God freely in whatever the circumstances are. We read together this morning in Psalm 33. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Israel, people who are serving God, yeah. Persia, who want nothing to do with Yahweh. Uh Uh-huh. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Where does our joy and worship come from? Because God patiently overcomes obstacles to his good work. It's pretty good.